with Frank Gaffney. We're back and joined by a man I admire immensely. His name is Captain James Fennell, United States Navy retired. He has served our country with great distinction for decades in the uniform of the United States Navy, um, some 30 years, in fact, as a naval intelligence officer. He rose through the ranks, uh, as I mentioned, to uh, the distinguished one of captain, but he also served as the assistant chief of staff for intelligence for the U.S. 7th Fleet for a time. Uh, He is based out in Europe, and we're always glad to catch up with him there. He is associated with the Geneva Center for Security Policy, not to be confused with the one here in Washington that sponsors this program, but a very valued colleague, notably a member of the Committee on the Present Danger China, for which I am particularly grateful, and a great resource for this program. Always well. Captain, it's good to have you back on board. Welcome, sir. Thanks, Frank. Uh, Glad to be back with you. We have to start this conversation, I regret to say. Um, While I think the focus of it will probably be on the area that you've devoted most of your professional career to and uh, continue to be very, very much engaged in, namely the Eastern Asia, Western Pacific theater. But let's start with Afghanistan. Uh, Your take on what has happened there as a military man, as well as what now seems in prospect, and maybe use that as a segue to introduce us to what it's probably going to result in when one looks to um, some of the adversaries we're confronting beyond the Sharia supremacists, namely Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, Frank, uh, what's going on in Afghanistan is really, uh, it's just hard hard to, hard to digest and to comprehend uh, how the United States of America is acting in such a, such a way that's uh, dishonorable and, and disgraceful, to be honest. And it just seems uh, incredible that uh, we actually have leaders that would actually uh, pick a date uh, to do something and order out the military and then get around to saying, oh, we have these other folks uh, that we have to take out. And the date was, you know, generally this 31 August, which was essentially to set up for some kind of uh, photo op uh, propaganda ploy that would say, look, we were the ones that finally were able to get America out of Afghanistan and we we're able to now celebrate uh, America being free of this entanglement on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. That seems to be what the political uh, points that they were trying to score, and it's completely backfired on them, and uh, it's just despicable what's happened. And what's more despicable, in my opinion, is the number of uh, generals and flag officers and senior executive service officials inside the Pentagon. Not one person, not one person has resigned in disgust over this. And that, to me, is really a, a really uh, revealing episode of why not one person uh, would, would say that they're not going to stand by and be a party to what is essentially the, the, the murder of American citizens and friends from Afghanistan that helped us over the years. Yeah. Um, resigned in either disgust or in disgrace, for that matter. There's been no heads have rolled over this. And of course, we haven't seen the end of it by any means. Uh, there's an open question as to how many people will be left behind. I've done my commentary today, Jim Fennell, about what we know for sure is there's going to be an awful lot of armaments left behind. And again, from a military perspective, um, what does that portend in terms of the greatly enhanced lethality 
of uh, terrorist organizations and their friends um, benefiting from American ordinance on hardware and technologies that have been left behind. Well, I, I think I heard Senator Cotton say it on the radio show last night. I mean, he's more acquainted with the Army than I am, given my background in the Navy. But his point was well made, which is to say that what the forces like Taliban and, and these uh, terrorist organizations really uh, covet is these small arms and things that ha- help the individual sto- soldier, night vision goggles, body armor, uh, you know, boots, things of that nature that they can't normally get. And so this is going to be a boon to them, and they'll be able to maintain these small uh, person equipment for years while maybe some of the other equipment will fall into disrepair because they don't have uh, the technology and the know-how and the maintenance capability. But that those technologies like the Blackhawks and the larger vehicles, that technology will probably be sold off to China for money uh, or the Russians. Uh, and then the worst part of it, from my background in intelligence, is the access to all this, uh, you know, uh, digital data uh, that we had collected over the years on who was with the Taliban, who wasn't with the Taliban, and the, the trove of information that they will now have to be able to go and find people uh, and essentially execute them for their cooperation with uh, with NATO and the United States over the years. So it's it's in every way it's a disaster. So you've mentioned that China and Russia, for example, would probably be scarfing up technology that uh, would be of interest to them from this cash um, and presumably benefit in other ways from the declining U.S. position in that part of the world. But what about the more intangible impact? Uh, our previous guest, Michelle Gernfinkel, talked a bit about you know, the extent to which uh, we have demoralized our allies and emboldened such adversaries. Uh, Is that how you see it? And from your close monitoring of the Chinese, you know, propaganda outline and its military activities, are you anticipating that this may well translate into greatly intensified threats, uh, for example, to Taiwan? I I definitely think uh, the evidence is already manifest that China has used the Afghanistan uh, debacle and to put direct pressure on Taiwan. And they've said it over and over again throughout their, uh, their uh, propaganda and China Daily, People's Daily, Global Times, to say that, hey, people of Taiwan, wake up, uh, see what's happening in Afghanistan. America's not going to be uh, there for you. They cannot be trusted, even if they say they would, which they haven't said, oh, by the way. So you have nothing to rely on now. You are at our mercy, and you might as well uh, capitulate and come under our rule. Uh, and then we've likewise seen increased uh, exercises. Today, there's been a bunch of announcements of exercises that are going on in, by the PLA uh, around Chinese waters and surrounding Taiwan. Uh, missile firings have been tested out in the West, and all sorts of uh, demonstrations of military might and power are being uh, reflected uh, in, in the Chinese uh, uh, press that gets, you know, it's a psychological warfare against uh, the people of Taiwan, the Taipei government, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the president, and her cabinet and officials and the military of the Taiwan. So, and again, also not just against Taiwan, but they know that they have other allies there uh, that would ha- want to help them. Japan has been very vocal here in the last uh, couple of months saying that, you know, any attack on Taiwan is essentially something that Japan now has a, a vital interest in. Uh, and this now will, what's happening in Afghanistan is going to pressurize uh, Tokyo to 
rethink that. I don't think the Japanese are going to back off, but it's now going to put the onus on them to say, what what are we going to do? Because we may not be able to handle, we may not be able to trust that the United States will be there, at least not under Joe Biden and his administration. When you see a secretary of defense say to the press, we have no way to get people out. And we're ordering our military not to go outside of the, the wire around the airport at Kabul. Yet we see other small NATO nations like the, the Danish sending out and picking up people. I mean, that's incredible. It is indeed. You, as I said, closely studied the Chinese for a long time. It is often said, and certainly there is, you know, a tradition dating back to Sun Tzu, a famous Chinese strategist of uh, ancient times, that it is better to win without fighting than to have to engage in actual conflict. Do you believe that the Chinese would content themselves with psychological warfare and other coercive techniques uh, if it did not bring Taiwan to heel? That in other words, they will ultimately use the capacity that they have amassed uh, to achieve this goal through kinetic means, if that is required. And, and I ask this in part informed by a, a report in Forbes just yesterday, I believe, talking about the massive uh, transport fleet that China has put into place, um, among other capabilities, uh, to sustain a, an invasion of Taiwan, something they've, they've never undertaken. They've not experienced amphibious landings and warfare and so on. Um, but what's your current you know, threat assessment of the possibilities uh, or probabilities that this will go violent in the not too distant future? I, I, uh, my, my feeling is, is that the Chinese use what they call comprehensive national power. And so they use all the levers of power that a nation has. And their, as you said, Sun Tzu's ideal is to win without fighting, to convince the other side to do what you want without having to pull out a gun and put it to their temple. Uh, so I think that's the acme of the skill that they would like to achieve. But they have also built the military tool, and there's no question in my mind that they will use it. And so as I, I was on a uh, with some other folks the other day, and I said, you know, we in the West were kind of come out of the you know classics uh, thinking of logic and if this then that and we kind of bifurcate things and separate them out and, and in the Chinese they look at things more like a, a woven tapestry and so they go from trying to convince their enemy to do what they want through pressure of information warfare psychological warfare economic warfare but they're more than willing to use physical warfare and we've seen that in the history of China we've seen it in the history of the PRC. And they now are more convinced than ever that, one, they have a superior military in terms of platforms, numbers of platforms, weapons of their platforms, strategic rocket force. And now they've witnessed the most powerful nation in the world kowtow to the Taliban in Afghanistan in the face of the world exposing it. I mean, they probably thought, you know, maybe maybe they could have rationalized and said, well, they made a mistake. They're not competent even though they told everyone they were the most competent foreign policy team ever. They, they made a mistake, but they would quickly correct it and roll in with thousands of American troops to correct the situation. But what we're seeing now is we're not going to do that. And we're going to let, as the BBC just said today on their front page, maybe 48,000 or more 
people will not be able to leave Afghanistan uh, when the Biden administration slams the door shut on the 31st of August. Yeah, or the Taliban does. Subject the te- well, yeah. And, and so China sees all this and says, okay, if they're willing to take this kind of loss, what will they do for Taiwan, which they don't have any investment in, in the same way? We have invested money over the years, but we haven't invested as a nation blood, sweat, and tears over 20 years. And so if we haven't invested in the Taiwan problem to the same way we have in Afghanistan, the Chinese must be just, they will see this as a green light to take military action if Taiwan continues to resist. Then the question really is, what will Taiwan do? And I think, in my opinion, is if you're in Taiwan, you have two choices, you know, either fight for your freedom or die and be a slave. This is deeply troubling, needless to say, um, because the next uh, chunk of the free world that China may choose to bite off is unlikely to be the last. You've been following, I know, uh, Jim, the progress of the so-called Belt and Road Initiative that the Chinese have mounted. We've done a study um, under the sponsorship of the Committee on the Present Danger China's Captive Nations Coalition that uh, is available at presentdangerchina.org, which documents the very extraordinary success of the Chinese in building out infrastructure that is unfortunately inherently dual use and seems likely to have been put into place with that in mind by them. So um, against this backdrop of uh, the whole of society kind of approach to uh, threatening Taiwan and for that matter, others um, in the region uh, and and to some extent us as well here at home, and building this imperial, colonial, global arrangement that is uh, enabling to a far greater degree, if not immediately, then certainly in the near future, power projection by the Chinese all over the planet. We're looking at a very dangerous China indeed. And I just wonder quickly, if you could, um, the degree to which those in the region that you've worked in so long are likely to be, uh, well, satisfied with or even uh, mildly encouraged by the comments of Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, uh, assuring them that we are still a global power, that we're still engaged in the region, that we're going to be reliable and trustworthy and all that, against the backdrop of what the Chinese are actually doing physically, psychologically, and economically. Right, Frank. Uh, well, the administration has a huge uh, credibility gap right now. Um, as I mentioned, they uh, Reported before the election and before the uh, their inauguration that they were the most uh, experienced, uh, knowledgeable, professional, competent foreign policy team that we could possibly have. And so far, they've demonstrated, uh, at least with this Afghanistan fiasco, that that's clearly not true. And so there's a huge credibility say-do gap. You know, I say one thing, but I do something different. And so even if uh, the vice president was a skillful orator, and had experience in foreign policy, both of which she does not, uh, it would be a really tall order. You know, imagine if Churchill went there and tried to uh, solidify and reassure the allies, maybe, but uh, it's very unlikely that the vice president's going to have uh, a huge impact. And I say that in the context of 
a month earlier, the Secretary of Defense was out there. And it, it, right at the time that the, the British uh, Royal Navy's uh, Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group is arriving into the South China Sea. And, and the Secretary of Defense was out in Asia. I think he was in Singapore. And he gave a speech. And he essentially criticized the British and said, you know, it'd be better if you guys would take care of your stuff, uh, the world's needs. We have a lot of areas that are of concern that we share. Why don't you guys stay in Europe and let us take care of the Pacific? Not, not quite that bluntly, but it was that was the message that came across to the British. So we've already, uh, you know, a month ago kind of denigrated the British uh, internationally. And now you've obviously seen the members of parliament and the the condemnation that they've had uh, of this administration for the cowardice that they've been demonstrated in Afghanistan. So unless uh, the vice president has some kind of, you know, on fire speech that says America is committed to defending Taiwan and this is what we're putting forward, we're going to shift, you know, resources and, and, and some very clear and unambiguous language. I don't see how that's going to have a big impact uh, on the region. And even so, as you, as you say, the credibility uh, gap may be such that uh, whatever she said, would be discounted. But I, I just have to say, Jim, that that escaped my attention, the uh, the comments Lloyd Austin made about the Brits, um, especially unseemly at a moment when we have no carrier in the Western Pacific, because uh, the Reagan, as I recall, is uh, now deployed in support of our, well, very dangerous and difficult situation in Afghanistan. Um, this is a topic to which we will return with you soon, if we may. Captain James Fennell, United States Navy, retired. Thank you so much for your time today, sir, and for your continuing service to our country. It's deeply appreciated. Thanks to the rest of you for joining us today. I hope you'll do so again tomorrow. Same time, same station. Until then, this is Frank Gaffney. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney. 